If you have your Bible today, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We are in Luke chapter 6. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at this entire chapter, seeing Jesus' sermon on the plain, that is, specifically his teaching for his disciples about what life in his kingdom should look like. Uh, People have been gathering around Jesus, they have been following him, and now he is telling them, if you are going to come after me, if you are going to follow me as one of my disciples, then this is how you should live. This is what it looks like to be known as one of my people. And like so many sermons, I think there is probably the temptation to listen and to nod and to go away unchanged. Not just for us today, but for those that would have been there the day that Jesus gave this sermon. There would have been the temptation to think, this is really important, Jesus is a good guy, he's healed lots of people, and now I'm going to go away and not worry so much about what he said. And as we come to the conclusion of the sermon this morning, Jesus is clear, you cannot let that happen. You cannot go away having heard what I said, but not believing it, not doing it. There needs to be a response to the teaching of Jesus. That's what we want to see this morning. And in order to kind of capture the sense of it, although we're only going to focus on verses 46 through 49, For our explanation this morning, what I would like to do is to go back at verse 17 and actually capture uh, what Luke gives us of this sermon in this chapter. So follow along as I begin reading, if you would. Luke chapter 6, begin at verse 17. And Jesus came down with his apostles and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. 
Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall in a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that out, that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the streams broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of God. The sermon comes to a conclusion with this vivid illustration of two men. One is a foolish man, the other is a wise man. One is a man who rushes in to get the job done, but is careless about how he does it. The other man stops to consider his options and takes longer and does the job right. One man encounters a flood and dies because of his foolishness. Another man encounters the same flood, but survives because of his wisdom. Jesus here is summarizing what he has been teaching by saying, there are only two ways to live. There is a way that leads to life, and there is another way that leads to death, and there is no middle ground. There is no riding the fence in between. You only have two paths to take, one choice to make. One is wise, and the other is foolish. What is the difference? The difference is this, how you respond to Jesus Christ. Will you acknowledge that he is Lord? Will you reject him? Or will you follow him as a disciple? If you would come after him and follow him and call him Lord, then he says your life will be one of obedience to him. That's the final message of this sermon, the message that we need to hear today. So as we seek to unpack these final verses of Jesus' sermon to his disciples, we first want to see the call to obedience. The call to obedience. We see this in verses 46 and 47. Think again about the context of the sermon that we talked about. If you were here, you might remember several weeks ago. Luke is only giving us the notes here. This is not the, the totality of the sermon. We just have the kind of skeleton outline that would have been the equivalent of an all-day Bible conference. People had come from miles and miles around. They're not going to, I mean, what did it take us there? Five minutes to read through that? They're not going to sit for five minutes and say, that was great, Jesus. All right, out of here. We're walking back home. No, 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 no. This would have been an all-day kind of thing. But, but Luke has given us a summary of what was said. And around Jesus are all these people who are coming to him and following after him. And he ends by saying, you can't go away having ignored what I've told you today. You can't 
ignore what I've told you today. Thus, Jesus makes it clear this simple truth. Obedience is essential. Obedience is essential if you are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Notice the progression of verse 47. Jesus' disciples are those who come and hear and do. Everyone there had come to Jesus that day. Uh, we, we didn't see it, but right before this, Jesus, we read in, in chapter 6, had spent the night in prayer. He, After coming out of that night of prayer, he picks the 12 men who are going to be his apostles out of this large group of disciples that are following him. He picks these 12 men who will not only uh, learn the most about Jesus and who he is and spend the most time with him, but after he dies and is resurrected, they are the men who will carry the gospel, well, at least spearhead, rather, that carrying of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so you have these 12, you have this larger group of disciples, then you have this great crowd of people who had come to Jesus because they had heard about his teaching, they had heard about his healing, and, and they were wanting to experience something about him. In that sense, they'd all come to him and they'd all begun well by recognizing their needs and in going to him to have those needs met. But Jesus says his disciples are more than that. They're not ones that simply come to encounter him. They also hear what he says. This past week, some of you know I was uh, fortunate enough to be back at uh, the seminary that I studied at in Louisville. And it was great to be back on campus uh, and to see all of the, the changes that have been made. They have a Starbucks on campus now, which was really good while I was taking this uh, two-day class in the afternoons when uh, the mind gets weary and you have that great God-given gift of caffeine that uh, supercharges your brain and gets you thinking again. And uh, not only was it great to be on campus, but it was really great to hear the content uh, that was being taught by these teachers. And I was taking notes so furiously, which I've not done in a long time, at least with uh, my hand, usually I'm typing, that I discovered writer's cramp again. And uh, thankfully, muscle memory kicked in the second day and there was no pain. But one of the things that just astonished me is I'm writing and writing, just thinking, man, this is so good, this is so helpful... I look, I look across, there's all these tables, there's about 250 of us uh, in, in this uh, big lecture hall, and I, I look across the table, and the guy's got a laptop open, and he's browsing through iTunes. So album, album, he's kind of looking. And then later he's switching over and he's looking at the daily news headlines. And then later he seems to just be aimlessly looking through his bookmarks on his, on his browser, finding something to read. I just thought, why are you here, man? I mean, I know for me, I mean, it was a big deal. I mean, I got a wife and four kids and responsibilities and I had to make sure all this stuff was done and it's an, it's an eight hour drive and all kinds of things had to, had to align for me to be down. I just thought, why are you here? What are you doing? You're not even listening to the speakers and the information that they're given. Well, people often do the same thing when it comes to Jesus Christ, don't they? Yeah, they do. he, he is speaking to us through his word. They may even show up to church because uh, they want to make a relative happy, because they want to feel good about themselves without actually listening to what God is saying to them. They've come from the freebies, as it were. Remember, people would, uh, would, would come to Jesus here teaching, and one day he's like, hey, we've got to feed these people, the disciples said. And Jesus said, well, you feed them. They said, what are we talking about? We can't feed them. And they look around, and they find a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread. So this is all we got. We can't feed these thousands of people. And Jesus prays, and suddenly there's enough food for everybody. And, and, you know, if, if you if you read some commentaries of a certain persuasion, they'll say, well, what, what happened was this little boy showed love and sacrifice by offering his lunch, and everybody was warm and filled by that spirit of love and sacrifice, so they all pulled out their food and shared it, and everybody had something. That's not what happened. Right. Okay, Jesus took a little bit, and he prayed, and God supernaturally multiplied it. Yeah. 
But you know what happens the next day? They're looking for a free meal again. <laughs> they don't really care about what Jesus is saying. They say, do the bread and the fish thing again. That was great. We liked that. And, and, and Jesus here is saying that disciples come to Jesus. They listen to him. They, they hear what he has to say. But even then, they, they don't stop there. They come to Jesus, they hear Jesus, and then they do what he says. This is the mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. They actually do what Jesus says to do. They obey him. Now, does that mean that Jesus' disciples will obey at all times and in all circumstances? Not at all. Jesus' disciples often fail, but their failure doesn't come from a lack of trying. Their failure comes and they're falling short of their attempt at obedience. In other words, the default setting for the Christian has been changed from the default setting of their life as a sinner. Now, because they have God's Spirit dwelling in them, their default setting is, I want to obey. I want to hear and obey. But because we're still sinful, we we fall short of that goal. Jesus says obedience is essential. Unless you think I'm reading too much into these verses, consider some others. Luke eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, who do what it says. John thirteen seventeen. Jesus says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. John fourteen fifteen. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Later in verse four twenty four, he says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. In chapter 15, verse 14 of John's gospel, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And in Matthew twelve fifty, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus saying? Jesus says, if you're my disciple, you're going to obey me. You're going to hear what I have to say and you're going to do it. And more than just my disciple, that means we are family. It means that you have been, you bear, you bear the marks of one who has trusted me for salvation. You've received adoption from God, and now we are part of one faith family. Nevertheless, he's still the Savior, he's still the Master, and therefore he is the one who issues the teaching, and we respond with faith and obedience. Now, does this mean we hear all these calls for obedience? If you love me, you're going to obey me. Obey, obey, obey. Does that mean that we are saved? Out of our sin that we get to heaven because we obey? The answer is no, an emphatic no. Jesus also says in John 10, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In Mark 10, Jesus says he's the son of man who gives his life as a ransom for many. During his last meal with his disciples in Mark 14, as he he hands them the, the wine, he says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. In all of this, Jesus is saying, look, obedience comes after faith. After you've experienced forgiveness from God. That forgiveness comes when you look to me and in my atoning death for your sins. When Jesus died, he went to the cross, not just as a martyr, not just in obedience to God. He went as a substitute for sinners. He died on that cross, the death that we should have died, under God's wrath. So many many people absolutely love the movie The Passion. Here's the problem. The greatest pain, the greatest agony, the greatest suffering that Jesus went through was not the physical. I mean, you watch that, you just think, oh, the brutality. That's nothing. 
Because the thing that could not be shown on that screen with sufficient impact was the reality that for three hours while he was on the cross, Jesus endured the fullness of God's wrath against sin. How unbelievable is that? Why did he do that? Why would the perfect son of God bear wrath against sin when he had no sin? He did it for us. He did it for us. And it's when we believe that, when we trust that, that's when we enter into relationship with God. And once we have that relationship with God, we have confessed faith in Christ and our love for Him as our Savior. That's when the life of obedience begins. Obedience is the fruit of us following Jesus as His disciples. Therefore, obedience is essential for us as Jesus' people. But conversely... If obedience is essential, then disobedience is treason. Disobedience is treason. Jesus issues this call to obedience in verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Now, in the immediate context of what's going on, the title Lord would have been an address of respect. It would have applied to a religious or a political leader. The point is, people would have recognized Jesus as this spiritual leader. They would have seen him as a godly teacher. And they would have doubly emphasized that fact by the repeated, Lord, Lord, not just one Lord, it's Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, why do you call me that if you're not going to do what I say? Why are you going to say to my face, Lord, Lord, and yet ignore what I'm telling you to do? How can you really believe I'm a spiritual leader if you don't listen and follow through in obedience? If you don't follow my lead? Think about the fact that Jesus is saying that at virtually the beginning of his ministry. And now we're sitting here almost 2,000 years later. And for us, we know Lord, Lord means something even more. It's not just a title of respect. Now that Christ has risen from the dead and his apostles have explained in fullness who he is and what he has done, we know that it means he is the Lord God Almighty. So that as you read through the Old Testament and see God addressed as Lord, Lord God, Lord Almighty, Lord El Shaddai, everything, everything, that Lord is the Lord Jesus as well. He is the fullness of deity in bodily form. It is the same Lord who created the world and sustains it by the word of his power. The God who was made flesh to die for our sins and was raised back to life and sits again at the right hand of the Father in unapproachable light. It is that kind of Lord. And so we here today who have, who have confessed him to be that, the Christian confession across all time, across all denominations, across all, uh, all countries, if you are a Christian, that the one thing that we always agree on is this, Jesus is Lord. And so if you've confessed that, then the question is, why are we not doing what he says? Matthew Henry in his commentary He says, for for we who follow Christ today, who confess Jesus as Lord and fail to obey him, it is no better, we are no better than the Romans who mocked him before his crucifixion. Do you remember the scene? Jesus has been arrested. He's been bounced between Jewish religious authorities and Roman authorities. Nobody ultimately wanted to take responsibility for what is about to happen. And when he's finally condemned to die, Matthew tells us the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. 
And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now ask yourself, was Jesus king of the Jews? Yeah. Not the king they wanted, but he was their king. Did the soldiers believe that? No. That's why they mocked him. Said, look at this, you're the king? Whack. Now ask yourself this, is Jesus Lord? Yes. 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 Do you believe that? If the answer is yes, then that makes you a disciple. If you're a disciple, how much more of a mockery is it to Jesus if as his disciples who believe he is Lord do not live as if he is Lord? How can our how can our disobedience be any less sinful? How can it be anything less than cosmic treason itself? Jesus issues a call for obedience, but he also explains to us the result of obedience. The result of obedience. Look at verse 47 again. Jesus says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. What Jesus promises for those who come here and do are prof- is, is profoundly comforting. But notice first that these results come by hard work. These results come by hard work. What does it mean to hear and obey Jesus? He says, it's like a man who built his house on a foundation of a rock, who dug deep and laid the foundation. Now imagine the work that would have been involved in that. I mean, today we rent some equipment, it takes us 30 seconds, and we've dug down to the rock, right? Well, they, you know, they don't have, they didn't have gasoline back then, okay? In case you didn't know that, there's no big equipment that they're filling up and driving, all right? So this guy's got his shovel, he's got his pickaxe out, and he's, he's marked off, this is how big I want this house to be. And so he's put stakes in the ground, he's got his, his, his string out, surely, and so he starts digging. And, you know, how, how did he dig? Did he just go all the way down and then all the way? I have no idea, but here's this man, maybe he had some friends, it doesn't say he had friends though, so it's just him. He's digging through the dirt, through the hard clay, over and over again until he hits that bedrock. And then he keeps going until the entire area where his house is going to be built is exposed. What was it? A foot, two feet down through hard clay until he hits this bedrock? You would, you would surely have to be in, willing to invest much time to exercise great patience and diligence to accomplish this task. And the other thing, too, you have to think about, you know, when he got to the rock, was it level? You know, I, don't, I mean, I don't, know how they, I don't know how they did their leveling, but I can only imagine that the rock is not like, you know, cut glass under there. Uh, did they have to chip out some of the rock? Did they, did they put a little bit of dirt to fill up? I have no idea, but we know nobody wants a crooked house, right? I mean, no one wants to live in a room like those Batman villains in the old 60s TV show where everything's cockeyed. Uh, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Just Google it later, okay? Uh, but but ever, the Joker's standing like this saying, Hoo-hoo-hoo, we're going to take over. And you're thinking, why is he at an angle all the time? Anyway, nobody wants to live in a house like that. So all of this hard work, all of this time and patience and diligence to get this thing right. And Jesus is saying, that's what it looks like to live the Christian life. That's what it looks like to lower, to drop, to dig down deep and lay your foundation for the storms that are to come. 
It takes the same kind of time and patience and diligence to hear and obey Jesus. So it's going to take time to study and understand God's word, longing to hear his voice from the Bible. It takes patience to target your sin and identify your disobedience and seek out, seek out scriptures and wise counsel that will give you right thinking and faith to kill that sin and your desire for it in your heart. It will take diligence and prayer to seek God's grace day by day, asking for the power that we need for change in our lives. Practically speaking, how do we do this? Well, it's very simple. Make a plan. Make a plan. Someone has, has wisely said that if we fail to plan, we plan to fail. In other words, we, we, we don't just fall backwards into maturity. We, we don't just wake up one morning and realize, hey, I'm holy. What about that? No more, no more sinful habits. That, that, that doesn't work in the real world. Okay? And so what's, what's going to happen is if we don't have some kind of a plan to, to engage our pursuit of God, then, then we're not going to do it. I mean, we may become convicted. We may feel especially uh, close to God after, uh, after a near miss of a tragedy or something. And we'll sit down and we'll open the Bible and we'll start to pray. But the reality is the day in, day out wear of life will, will cause that to vanish in a, in a second. So we need some kind of a plan. A, 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 a plan for focusing on God. You say, well, I don't know how to make a plan. I don't know how to plan to, to read the Bible or to pray or to handle failures. That's, that's okay. It's the reason why God's given you pastors. It's the reason why he's given you godly Christians who've already made a plan. You, you come and you talk to us. We will help you sit down and formulate a plan for, for digging down deep that your foundation might be upon God and his word. But the question that may be ringing in your mind is this. Is it all worth it? I mean, this sounds like a lot. This sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like hard. I've got to listen. I've got to obey. I've got to seek things out. Is it worth it? And so Jesus says here, look, the results of obedience is spiritual stability. The results of obedience is spiritual stability. I can, I can hardly imagine a more difficult circumstance than the one that Pastor Scott Willis and his wife Janet went through back in 1994. If we, if we sometimes talk about the storms of life, then this was surely a hurricane of pain and despair. Six of their nine children were traveling with them to Wisconsin on the I-94 when they ran over a large piece of metal in the road. Within seconds, that piece of metal had flown up into the bottom of their car, puncturing the gas tank, turning their minivan into a rolling explosion of gas and flame. Scott and Janet in the front were thrown from the vehicle, and all six of their children perished in an instant. How do you go on after that? I mean, how do you, how do you find the strength to even get out of bed when you've sat and watched six of your nine kids burn up in a car? that you were just in seconds ago? How, how do you find the strength to even believe God is still good at that point? How do you show kindness towards other people and not just become hardened in your affections and your outlook in the world, being eaten up by cynicism and bitterness? It's only by having your life built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and what he teaches us in his word. During the news conference a few days later, they said, as they both sat burned and bandaged, that they were comforted themselves during this time by remembering that they had been preparing for this kind of event for their entire lives. It's not that it wasn't painful. It was unbelievably painful. 
but they believed, they knew that God was good. And so that even in this terrible tragedy, he was still in control. And in their hospital room, they watched videos of their recent trip of their children and they read passages from the scripture to one another. And they told the reporters that this was a reminder that, that God had demonstrated his love to them and to their family. The wife said, quote, we belong to him. My children belong to him. He is the giver and taker of life and he sustains us. Now here's the reality. If you've not learned that lesson before the event, you won't learn in the event. You will crumble in the event. And this is what they meant. They, 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 they were not calloused about it. They were not laissez-faire. They loved their children deeply. But what they are saying is, throughout their life up to this point, they have been digging deep. They, they have been toiling with hard labor, with patience, with diligence, with faith. As they have dug down into the, uh, the, the deepness of the solidity of a foundation of a life with God. What they have discovered are these deep truths that now sustain them in the midst of the storm. You, 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 you can't prepare for suffering when you're in the middle of suffering. You have to prepare for suffering before it hits. That's the whole point that Jesus says. This man has taken the time to, to dig down and put the foundation of his house upon this rock so that not in the middle of the flood, but later when the flood comes... The house is beaten, the house is battered, but it does not fall. I don't know about you, but I want that kind of rock solid, rock solid stability in my life. I, I, don't want to, I don't want to feel unsure when those storms come. When, when life kind of blows up in your face, I don't want to be worried about the shrapnel. I want to know there is a good God who loves me and is going to take care of me and allow me to ride through this storm. But notice, not everyone does this. Not everyone builds their foundation on the rock. There is one, he says, who hears and does not do them. He is like, that is, that he, he hears what Jesus says, but he doesn't do what he says. He is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Some hear the words of Jesus, but they don't believe them. They don't obey Him. And without that foundation, they cannot survive the flood. They cannot survive the difficulties in this life. But here's the thing. Jesus is not just talking about stability in this life, but also security in the life to come. Because the reality is, we live in a sinful world. Very often sinful because of what we do. Calamity and disaster and suffering happens because of our own sin. But sometimes it's innocent suffering. It's not the result of our sin. And yes, Jesus is promising that in this life we can weather both of these things. But more importantly, a day will come when we stand before God. And Jesus says that he will judge the living and the dead. And the question is, will you be able to stand against the flood of God's wrath or will you fall and be drowned under it? Remember, Jesus said there's only one way to find forgiveness and life to be saved from God's wrath and that is by trusting in Him as our Savior. That He already took the wrath for us. In this life, the assurance that that is true 
is seen in how we respond to Jesus. Are, are we just playing a game like he's fire insurance? We think he's our get out of hell for free card? Or do we see the great sacrifice and the love that he has shown us and therefore we desire to love him and to show that love through our obedience? Are we, are we listening to the warning that he's even given to us? Even here, as Lord, he's not a tyrant. He is telling us the best thing you can do is to hear my words and to heed them, to listen to what I have to say and obey because it will allow you to survive the flood that comes. On April 15, 1912, the Titanic sank to the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean. And the saddest part of that tragedy that is so popular and well-known in our culture now is that the whole thing could have been avoided. Several ships traveled in the area, sent warning messages to the Titanic, telling them that there were dangerous icebergs in the sea that they should alter their course. The Titanic received the first warning from the British ship Coronea at 9 a.m. the morning before it sank. Another message came in at 1.42 and at 1.45 p.m., at 7.30 p.m., and at 9.40 p.m. Why did not they not respond to these warnings? Because they were simply ignored. The captain's credit, he had ordered a change of route early on in the day, but the crew never got the message. And as they continued to come in, even at 10.30 at night, Cyril Evans, the, the Titanic's radio operator, was yelling at the people sitting in the warnings to get off the line. Shut up! Shut up! He said. He was trying to call ahead to America that they would be ready for their arrival. But they never arrived. Despite all the warnings that were given to them, the Titanic continued at almost top speed until it struck the fatal iceberg. Now, it's easy for us to sit back and say, how stupid. You had warning after warning after warning. You knew what was coming, but you didn't listen to it. But do we do the same thing today spiritually? Do we hear Jesus giving us the warnings that in this life and in the life to come, there will be a threat to our very soul? And yet here is the solution to the problem. Trust in me. Or do we ignore him? Do we say, I don't, I don't need that. I don't need to listen to that. Jesus says, if, if you fail to heed the warning that I'm giving you, if you fail to heed the instructions that I'm providing, then you will not stand. You will not stand in this life or in the next. So the question this morning for all of us is this. First of all, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you realized the spiritual danger that you are in because of your sin and have flown to him for salvation, trusting not in anything that you do, but in what Jesus has done to make you right with God? And if so, then is it obvious from your life? Have you said, Jesus is Lord? And is it clear that though imperfectly, you are striving to, to hear and to obey what Jesus says? May that be true of all of us today. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your son, Jesus. Words could not express how thankful we are to know that we are the recipients of his grace in our life. God, may, may our love for him, our thankfulness for him, cause us to reflect on our life and our attitudes, not just towards the salvation he provides, but also his lordship the instruction and teaching that he gives. God, may we be a people who not only come to Jesus, but who hear him and who do what he says. 
God, we know that this will be for our greatest good. Even when it's difficult, even when it requires hard work and diligence and time, God, may we see the, the worthwhile investment that is for our, our souls and the benefit of those around us. God, may we glorify your Son by living in obedience to Him. We ask all this in His name. Amen.